Before we actually get started, um, I have one thing to say in terms of housekeeping. And the, um, s some of the words I chose last week were unwise and caused a stumbling block and offense to some. And so I need to apologize before we begin. So would you all forgive me for um, those unwise words last week? Thank you. Uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do humble ourselves before you and worship you for the blood of your new covenant that you have shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you, God, that we um, stand before you as righteous in Christ, not with the righteousness of our own, but with that which you have secured for us by your obedient life and your sacrificial death. For this, God, we worship you. And we ask, God, as we open your word, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would strengthen our hearts, and you give us a greater passion uh, for obeying you and taking your gospel to the ends of the world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is our last week in the book of Acts. Um, finishing it up, we've got about eight or nine chapters to go through. Um, but the, the theme of this week is basically the same thing as last week. Last week we talked about how um, there is no obstacle that, get, that can stop the gospel because it is Jesus who is building his church. Jesus, who is now sitting at the right hand of God, is advancing the gospel. And there is nothing that can stop him. And we looked at last week at how um, the persecution that was coming against Paul was demonically based, and these demons were pursuing him. And, but the actual fact is they were actually advancing Paul. They were pushing him along in his ministry. Um, the same thing is, is continuing to, to develop now as Paul travels to Jerusalem and after Jerusalem to Rome. He is going to suffer persecution all along the way. But today, and, and of course there are no hindrances to the gospel in this. We have to understand that. As we're, as we're reading this, we need to understand that all of these things are happening aren't really hindering the gospel. But today we're going to see another, a new little twist on this, is that Jesus is building his church, but he's doing it not just through the preaching of the gospel, but he's doing it through the suffering of Paul. That is to say, Jesus himself chose to cause Paul to suffer to such a degree that he did in order to advance the gospel. As we submit ourselves to God's hand and accept the suffering that God brings us into our into our lives. He fits us for the gospel and uses that suffering to advance the gospel. Um, so with that in mind, before we get into Acts 20, we we're going to start in Acts 20 today, uh, let's go back to Acts chapter 9 just to remind you of that so you can see how this theme is developing throughout the book. Now when Paul was, or when Paul was still called Saul, and he saw the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord, on the Damascus road, and he was blinded. The Lord sent a man named Ananias to go and you know, confirm him in the gospel, baptize him, and all that. And so the Lord appears to Ananias and tells him to go, but Ananias initially doesn't want to. Picking up in verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how, must he, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So there is God's plan and intention in choosing Paul. You can see that there's election there. He's a chosen instrument of mine. Uh, so God chose Paul before he was ever born to be this instrument. What did he choose him to do? To take the gospel before the Gentiles, Israelites, and kings. 
And how is that going to happen? Through the suffering. Jesus is just laying that out for us explicitly. How is that going to happen? Because I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Um, so that, it is those verses that are guiding these last eight or so, eight or nine chapters of the book of Acts. What we're going to see is that Jesus' promise to Ananias, his, his statement to Ananias is coming true in these chapters. There is going to be a parade of dignitaries and kings and officials that are brought before Paul for the gospel's sake. And all of that is in the context of his suffering and imprisonment. Um, so let's begin. We're, gonna, we're now, where we left him off last time, he was in Ephesus finishing his third missionary journey. And um, he was planning to leave Ephesus to go to Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 19 uh, in verse 21 says, Paul purposed in the spirit, that is in God's spirit, to go to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia, Achaia, and after that to go to Rome. That's Acts 19.21. But there's a hindrance. Before he's able to leave Ephesus, uh, he's he's delayed because of this uproar. All the silversmiths and the idol makers, um, they have this riot because of Paul's ministry there. And so he delays leaving until that's over. Now that that's over, chapter 20, we pick up the story. Um, The uproar has ceased. And he now backtracks, he, um, he back, kind of backtracks to the places that he'd been on his second and third journeys. He goes up through Macedonia, he goes through uh, Achaia and Greece and all that area. And then he circles back around uh, on his way to Jerusalem. He sails out. Um, but when he passes Ephesus, he doesn't want to go to Ephesus again because he doesn't want to get stuck there again. He had so much trouble leaving last time. So he stops at a town called Miletus. This is now verse 17 of chapter 20. From Miletus, he sent to the... Ephesus and called the elders to him. So he wants to, before he leaves, he knows he's not going to be coming back that way. Um, he wants to give them some encouragement before he does. And can, can I get a volunteer to read his speech? Starting in verses 18 through 25, 35. His speech is instructed for us, so let's read it. Can I get somebody to do that? Okay, go ahead.
here. Thank you. So you can see there in the beginning of his little speech to them that we just have a summary of, he begins um, saying that everywhere he goes, the Spirit's testifying that he's about to suffer, that afflictions are awaiting him. So he knows um, where he, he has intended in the, in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. But every, every step along the journey he takes, the Holy Spirit speaks through the church to him that he's going to suffer when he gets there, that there's suffering about to happen. And he's still determined to go. You can see his resolve to do that. He is willing to suffer and die for the sake of the gospel. He knows, there's not many of us that would know that if, if God told us in advance, you're going to go to this next city, you're going to move here for a job, but it ain't going to work and you're going to suffer. Most of us would think twice about going. Most, you know, usually God doesn't reveal that in advance to us. He lets us find it out in the course of life. Um, but you can see here Paul's determination. That for the sake of the gospel, he's willing to give his life. Um, and so you can see that from the beginning. And he, and he gives them that example. He says, um, look at my example. You who are elders here, look at my example and see how, how I in conducted my ministry. I did it with tears. I did it with hard work. I did it with suffering. I didn't covet anything. And he's saying that this is how you need, if you want to serve God in the gospel, this is how you do it. You do it by giving up of yourself. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. If you want to advance the gospel in this world, you have to be willing to suffer for it. Because we are joined to Christ. And that is the manner of his life. That is how he accomplished God's purpose for him. You know, Jesus, Jesus did not um, establish the new covenant without his blood. That's what it takes. And if we are joined to him, that's what it takes for us too. If we're going to live in this life as followers of Christ, we have to follow him to the cross before we can follow him to glory. Uh, and that's, that's what Paul is saying here to them. But there's also an interesting warning here that it's not repeated in quite these terms in anywhere else in the New Testament, so it would be good if we observed it. Um, he's telling the elders of the church. He's not speaking to the whole church. He's just speaking to the elders, and he says in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock, which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In the verse 29, he says, because the congregation is in danger. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That means that there will be false believers infiltrate the membership of the church and will cause divisions and strife and that. But at verse 30, not only, is it going to, not only are false believers going to try and infiltrate the church, but look at verse 30. They're going to infiltrate the elder board. And from among your own selves, that is, you elders, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And so he's giving a warning that Satan's designs to divide and destroy the church is not just, he's not going to infiltrate the membership, he's going to infiltrate the eldership. People who pretend to be godly and to, and who seem to be the nicest, most godly people you ever meet, once they get on the elder board, they begin, they, after some time, they begin drifting away into false doctrine. And they begin gathering people after them. And they take them off into false teaching. Um, I'm not aware of anywhere in the New Testament that warns it in quite that way. But that's a, that's a danger we need to be aware of. There's a reason why the New Testament says when you appoint elders, you don't lay hands on someone quickly. It's a very serious thing to put someone in leadership who's going to apostatize. Um, there's almost no greater damage you can do to a congregation than that. Um, so that's a very serious warning that we need to take, that we need to be aware of. Um, but the main point of that speech is Paul is giving them his example, an example of suffering, um, and he's willing to do it. So he leaves from, he leaves from Ephesus, I'm sorry, from Miletus, 
And he passes around, and they bounce around the coast, going all around. And now they come to um, Syria and Tyre in that area. They're, they're just north of the Mediterranean coast of Israel in chapter 21. And, um, and look at verse 4 of 21. They visit some disciples. They look up the disciples, and they were staying there for seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Um, now that would seem to be contradictory to what we've been seeing so far. It seems like the Holy Spirit has been saying, go to Jerusalem and suffer there. That's what we've been looking at. But now it seems like he's almost contradicting himself. Uh, the explanation comes a little bit later um, in verse 10, if you skip down to verse 10. As we were staying there, that is with Philip the Evangelist from earlier in the book of Acts, um, we were staying there, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he came to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. In verse 12, when we heard this, we as well as the local residents, that we there is Luke, that Paul's companions, his, traveling, his fellow ministers in the gospel, um, we as well as the local residents, or began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. So this, this is how we understand this. The Holy Spirit is not contradicting himself. In verse 4, the Holy Spirit was saying, bonds and afflictions await you in Jerusalem, and the church interpreted that to mean you shouldn't go. So that, that's what verse 4 is, is saying. So the, the believers there are looking at Paul. They know that he's um, a powerful weapon for the sake of the gospel. He's one of the most brilliant theologians the church has still ever had. Um, and he's the, he, he has been used of God to convert all, all of Asia, Asia Minor, um, and spread the gospel throughout the Mediterranean region. So they, they don't want Paul to suffer. They, you wouldn't want your, your best pastor, your, your favorite teacher, your, the man that you see God using so mightily. You wouldn't want him to suffer. And so they tell him not to go to Jerusalem. But look at Paul's response in verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since, we would, since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Um, no, you, know, you, see, you can see, again, Paul's determination to suffer. But you see, added to that in verse 14, an attitude of submission on the part of the church. Jesus is the one driving this. Jesus is the one who has chose Paul to suffer. And so the, the church needs to Submit to that and accept it. So they do. Let the will of the Lord be done. And so this, this comes true. They, they finally get to Jerusalem. And the elders in Jerusalem know that Paul is here, and that can cause a lot of trouble because the accusations against him are that, are that he teaches people not to obey the law. And so the elders ask Paul to, pu to dem publicly demonstrate that he's obedient to the law by taking these young men who have, who have made a vow and instead of them offering sacrifices, Paul is going to pay for them, buy the animals for the, and the grain or whatever it is they're going to sacrifice for them. So he's going to purify his, himself ceremonially and go to the temple with these men and pay their way uh, through their sacrifices. And Paul accepts this. So he wants, to, he wants to show publicly to the Jews that he's not teaching against the Old Testament law. He's teaching the fulfillment of it. And so he goes there in obedience to those elders um, and this is where the riot comes, and this is where he gets taken uh, in chapter 21. After the, at the end of the seven days, there's a seven-day feast. At the end of that time, verse 27, some Jews from Asia saw him in the temple, 
and began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Of course, you know from um, Pastor Dan's explanation of the temple a few weeks ago that there were different courts. There was a court of the Gentiles, a court of women, and the court of Israel. They're saying that, of course, Gentiles could come into the court, the outward court. But they couldn't come into the temple building proper. That was the court of Israel where only Israelite men were allowed to go. And if you brought in a Gentile into that court, what was the punishment? Anybody know? It was death. It was a capital crime in Israel to bring a Gentile into that. Um, so they, they, are, they are intentionally uh, accusing him of this, of bringing a Gentile in. They've seen him with an Ephesian in the, in the city, so they assume he's brought him into the temple because they want to kill him. This is an attempt to murder Paul. It's not just an idle accusation. It is a scheme to take his life. Um, because verse 29 says they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city, and they thought that he had brought him into the temple. Of course, he didn't. He didn't defile the temple at all. And so, now, this is in the context of one of the three main feasts in Israel. I think it's Passover, if I remember. I might be wrong on that. Um, but, you know, it's a week-long feast where all the men of Israel were supposed to come and, and worship in the temple. But if the temple is defiled, you can't go into the temple to worship. And so the result is they, they immediately, in verse 30, the doors were shut. That is, they took the charge that the temple was defiled seriously enough that they closed it. Now, what would that do to the city of Jerusalem? You have thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people who traveled halfway across the, the world, all from all over the Mediterranean world, to come and worship in Jerusalem, and now the temple doors are shut, and no one can get in. That would put the city into a complete uproar. The whole city would know about this quickly and would turn into a huge riot. And that's exactly what happens. The people who are in the temple begin to riot. They begin to take Paul and beat him, attempting to kill him. And the whole city hears about it, and they start, and they start going crazy. Um, now, right next to the temple, adjoining the temple, is the Antonia Fortress. The Romans had, had put a 1,000 soldiers right wall-to-wall with the temple, just because there's all these riots going, always going on with the Jews. And so the commander of that fortress, verse 33, hears about it and comes down, uh, verse 32. He took some of the soldiers and the centurions, and he ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Um, and then the commander took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with chains. There's the fulfillment of that prophecy. He's now bound. Um, with chains, and they began asking him what he had done. Of course, the crowd was so loud they couldn't get an answer, so they begin to carry him back to the barracks, back to that fortress. But the crowd is pressing so hard and still trying to kill Paul that the soldiers have to literally pick him up on their shoulders and carry him up out of the reach of the, of the, the throng of people. And they carry him up the stairs. And Paul asked permission from the, um, the commander to address the crowd. And that's where chapter 22 begins. Uh, before we get to that chapter, just notice here that the, the scheme of the Jews to murder Paul um, was almost successful. They, were, they beat him probably close to an inch of his life. They were not holding back. They weren't pulling any punches. They were literally trying to kill him. But notice how Paul uses that. He, immediately he wants to turn around. He wants to share the gospel with these people. These people who are in the act of trying to murder him, he, he, he stops the commander and says, can I address the crowd? I would like to say something to these people who are trying to kill me. 
I mean, that's an amazing love for his enemies. Very Christ-like. He is suffering very much the way Christ did in wanting to turn around to the crowd. And notice how Jesus is using this to advance the gospel. The scheme of the Jews to murder him is now being inverted and turned around, and now the gospel is going to be proclaimed to them, to the entire temple area. And so chapter 22 begins in that light. Um, He addresses them in Hebrew, um, and he starts giving his testimony. And in in his testimony, you know, it's consistent with what we saw in Acts 9, but now he focuses on the fact that he's a law keeper. He says in verse 3, I was brought up under Gamaliel, who was one of the most respected members of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, according to the law of our fathers. And I was zealous for God. (laughs) Note that, just like you are today. And that's kind of a rich statement with irony. Uh, I did exactly what you're doing in my zeal for God. I persecuted the way to death. Um, and he continues to tell his story how he saw Jesus on the Damascus Road. And then he, in, he introduces Ananias in verse 12. Notice the emphasis there in verse 12. A certain man named Ananias who was devout by the standard of the law. He, he's he's re- retelling his testimony, but he's telling it from the point of view of the Jewish people. We're all law keepers. Christians are not people who are against the law. We are the fulfillment of the law. You're a better Jew if you become a Christian than if you stay in the Jewish religion. And that is what he's saying. Um, And he's focusing on that. Um, And so he begins to tell them how Jesus appeared to him and saved him from his sin and commissioned him in the gospel. And he said in verse 17, there's there's some part of the story here we haven't heard before in verse 17. Uh, after he was baptized in verse 16, it happened when I, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. Notice, in the temple. He was worshiping God in the temple like a good Jew does. And he was praying, and, he, and God revealed himself to him in the temple. It's a very Jewish, law-keeping kind of thing. And I, saw, and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem. This is Jesus saying this to him. And get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord... They themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And when he mentions the name Gentiles, that's when the crowd has had enough. They start ripping their clothes and throwing dust in the air and and start screaming. And the the commander, upon seeing, of course, Commander probably doesn't know Hebrew, so he hasn't followed the conversation up to this point. He just knows the crowd's going crazy again. So he grabs Paul and sweeps him away. And they take him back into the barracks, and they begin, and it says that their intention in verse 24 is to examine him by scourging. That is to say, they haven't been able to ascertain the charges yet or what he did wrong, so they're going to beat it out of him. And scourging is just like the scourging that Jesus received, the cat of nine tails with the leather thongs with the pieces of glass and bone and pieces of metal and shards and all that worked into it. And they're going to beat him with that, that whip, the same whip that Jesus was beaten with, um, to get the truth out of him. Um, there's almost, I mean, that, that, I mean, that's just standard operating procedure for the Romans. You're going to ask a question for you, you're not going to tell me? It's the scourge. Um, ex- unless you're a Roman citizen. So Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship. Is it right? For you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And that puts the brakes on the whole thing. The centurion is now afraid. And the commander is now afraid. Because they, they were about to break Roman law in scourging him. So they put it off. And instead of scourging him, 
they bring him, they, they call the Sanhedrin together and they say, well, we need to ascertain the charges, so let's get the Sanhedrin together tomorrow and Paul can answer his accusers in front of me. So that's what they do in chapter 23. And so now Paul's Roman citizenship is now being used to advance the gospel because he said, I'm a Roman citizenship citizen. They can't scourge him to get their truth. They have to have a trial. And so now in the front presence of the Sanhedrin and in presence of this commander and the Roman officers, he now gets to tell the gospel again. Um, so each step of the way, it's just, it's just giving him more opportunities to share the truth. And so chapter 23, in front of the council, um, he begins to argue that he has not, <clears throat> not only not disobeyed the law, but he has tried to fulfill. It is because of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets that he is in chains. He says in verse 6, I am on trial for the hope of Israel and the resurrection of the dead. Um, and, of course, he does that strategically because he knows that in the, Sanhedrin, in the Sanhedrin there's two parties, like the Republicans and the Democrats. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so he says, I'm a Republican. And all the Democrats are like, kill him. And all the Republicans are like, no, he's one of us. Um, that's exactly, so he, he, puts, he puts it in terms of that partisan politics. He frames it in that way in his, in his wisdom to divide the group um, so they won't uh, kill him. They won't judge him because the Pharisees won't be willing to condemn one of their own. But he's, he is arguing from the Old Testament it's the hope of Israel. That is, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The resurrection of Christ was promised in the Old Testament. That's his argument. So he is, he's still explaining the gospel. He's still showing it as the fulfillment of the, of the Old Testament. But that causes division in the group. And um, to such an extent, look at verse 12. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So in other words, it's not, just a, it's not just a disagreement. I mean, these guys are becoming violent. They, they're, they're actually pressing against Paul as if they were going to tear him to pieces. So he ordered the troops. Note the extent, that the troop, the, the extent of the, the force that the troops have to use to save him. They go down, and they take him away by force. That is, they had to use violence against the Sanhedrin. These are the oldest, the wisest, the most mature men in Israel who lead the nation are in a violent fit of rage. And you just don't see that among elder statesmen, that they go crazy. But that's exactly what's happening here. So the soldiers have to use force. They have to use violence to extract Paul from the situation. Um, so they take him away back to the barracks. Um, and know what happens in the night. In verse 11, the Lord stood by his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also at Rome. Um, so there it is. You can put those words in, in red if, you're, if your Bible does that. Uh, that's Jesus himself coming to Paul and saying, your suffering is being used for the advancement of the gospel, and I'm going to take you to Rome in the same way. So that suffering, I think, I think that that's what he means by, as you have witnessed, so you will witness. It doesn't mean you're just going to share the gospel. Just like you shared the gospel here, you're going to share it there. It means just as you shared it in the context of suffering, in affliction, you're going to share it in Rome through your suffering and affliction. I think perhaps that's what he's saying, uh, considering that was his intention back in chapter 9. So again, the, the emphasis of the text is that Jesus is the one who's driving this. It's not the schemes of the Jews. It's not the power of the Roman authorities that's doing this. It's Jesus himself that is intentionally taking Paul into suffering for the sake of the gospel. And if he did that for Paul, he's going to do the same thing for us. It is, is Jesus' intention in this world to advance the gospel as we suffer for his sake. 
that, that unfortunately, that's not a very encouraging message, but that is how it works. Because it just as Jesus suffered and died, so we are joined in the likeness of his crucifixion so that we can be joined in the likeness of his resurrection. That's where the hope comes from, is that in this life, we suffer for Christ so that in the next life, we can reign with Christ. That's where the encouragement and the hope is. It's on the other side. It's not in the midst of it, but looking forward. Um, and so the next day, the 40-plus men, this is the last half of chapter 23 now, 40-plus men get a scheme together to murder Paul. They, they go to the Sanhedrin and say, I want, we want you to in request of the Roman commander to bring Paul back so that you can ascertain more accurately about his case. You know, tell him you've got some questions you want to ask. And then as he's coming, we're going to attack and kill him. But of course, as Paul is coming back, he's going to be guarded by a contingent of Roman soldiers. So in order to get Paul, you have to fight Rome. And so they have to get 40 and more men together to get enough people together, they think, to attack this small group of, of guards that would go with him. But notice their intention. I mean, they're so determined to kill Paul, they're willing to put their lives on the line, and they're willing to engage the Roman Empire in battle. That's how badly they want to kill him. Um, and so there's the scheme. But notice God, Jesus' providence. Jesus is still guiding this. Look at verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Just happened, Paul's nephew just happened to be in the room <laughs> when they're scheming to kill him or happened to hear it. Maybe he wasn't in the room, but he maybe he heard of it somehow else. Um, of course, before Paul was a Christian, he was part of the Sanhedrin, and he was moving in those circles, so it's not a stretch to think his family would still be kind of in, moving among those circles. Um, but we shouldn't understand it that way. It, this is not just a coincidence. This is Jesus protecting Paul. Jesus is the one driving this, and he has Paul's nephew there to hear the plan. And so he runs to Paul. Paul is, of course, free to accept visitors. And he tells Paul of the plan, and Paul passes on the information to the commander, and so the commander's response to that is to send him to the governor. So he writes a letter, um, and he, he commands, according to verse 23, 200 spearmen, 70 horsemen, to give him an escort. Um, so he, he, and they march, and they perform a forced march at night um, to take him to the governor. I can't remember how many miles it is, but it's um, maybe 40, 30 or 40 miles or something like that between the governor's residence and where he is. Now, moving from Jerusalem to Caesarea, I can't remember how far, but it was something like that. So they, they perform a forced march at night, and they mount Paul on a, on a horse, and they take him there uh, to protect him. So now notice what's happening. The, the, Jews, the Jews have come up with another scheme to kill Paul. And what happens is the Romans hear of it in, in God's providence, and they take him to the governor. Jesus said, you're going, to, you're going to testify before the sons of Israel, before the Gentiles, and before kings. So now the scheme of the Jews has now brought him before the governor, moving up the ranks of the dignitaries. Uh, in, the, in a few minutes, he'll, he'll talk to a king, but now it's the governor. So he's first he's witness to the centurions and the commander of a thousand, and now he's going to witness before the, the governor. So he's just, the schemes of the Jews are just moving him up the ranks. Um, and so before Felix, this is now chapter um, 24. Um, He's now before Felix, and uh, Paul summons him. And the, um, the high priests, they hire a lawyer, chapter, verse 2 of chapter 24, Tertullius, to come in and accuse him. And they start bringing all of these accusations. They accuse him of um, rebellion against the emperor. They accuse him of desecrating the temple in verse 6. 
the word in verse 5, the word the man was a real pest. That's kind of a loaded word. It kind of implies an offense against the emperor. Um, but they accuse him of desecrating the temple. Of course, he didn't. Um, but that is, but we were trying, and notice how they put it, notice how he lies to put themselves in such a good light. Um, he was desecrating the temple in verse 6, and we just, we just arrested him. You know, he was, we stopped him from desecrating the temple, and we arrested him as if this was a legal, a legal thing that they were doing. And we were trying to judge him according to our own law. But, the Lassius, the commander, came along, and with violence, he took him away from us. As if the Roman commander was the violent one. You know, he, they're, they're twisting the story around and lying. Um, ordering his accusers to come before you. you know, he's the one who sent us here. Um, and so they twist the story and lie to get Paul to die. Um, but Paul responds in verse 10. His response begins in verse 10. He is cheerful to make his defense before you. Um, and he just simply denies the, he simply denies the accusations um, and then says it's, he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. So he, he just says that they're lying and they can't prove what they're saying because they can't. Um, and then he says in verse 14, But I admit to you, according to the way which they call a sect, I serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and is written by the prophets, having hope in God. And so again, he's saying, he starts presenting the Old Testament to him. He's speaking to the governor. Of course, the governor's not a Jew. But he begins opening the Old Testament and says, here's what the prophets predicted. Here's what Jesus did. And so he just, he just explains the gospel to him in those terms. Um, and so he explains in terms of his hope in God. He's, being suffer- he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And everyone he comes in contact with, he explains it just like that, just that clearly. Um, and then he kind of appeals for either a mistrial or a postponed judgment. Um, he says in verse 20, um, I'm sorry, verse 18. Look back up at verse 18. Telling the story of what happened in Jerusalem, he says, But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men uh, themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. In other words, what he's arguing is the men who are here today who traveled from Jerusalem to Caesarea to accuse me weren't actually there in the temple. So how can they possibly testify to what I did if I desecrated the temple or not? How could they possibly testify that I'm worthy of death according to the Jewish law when they weren't there? They haven't produced any witnesses. So he's either saying defer judgment until the right witnesses can come or declare a mistrial because they didn't even bother to bring the right people. Um, He's saying they can't prove their case. There is no case. Um, But he's not just arguing for his life. He's presenting the gospel. Um, so Felix's decision is to postpone judgment. He says in verse 22, um, when Lassius, the commander, comes down, I'll decide your case. So he's going to call in another witness. He's going to call the Roman commander to be a witness. Um, and so while Paul's sitting there in jail, waiting for another trial, waiting for the next witness to come, um, Drusilla, or Felix has been talking with his wife about this case, and she is a Jew. And so she says, well, I've heard about this guy, and I've heard, well, why don't you let me hear it? And so Felix now brings his wife, who's the, the governor's wife, to him, and they begin in verse 25 discussing righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. So he's still he's preaching the gospel to them, and Felix becomes, according to verse 25, frightened. He says, go away for the present time, and when I find time, I'll summon you again. Now, he sends him away because he's scared. Scared of what? He's scared of the future judgment. He's, he's becoming convicted of his sin. We don't have any evidence... Uh, in the New Testament, that Felix actually became a Christian. Um, but the Holy Spirit was at least convicting him of his sin through Paul preaching the gospel to him. 
But you need to understand that the Holy Spirit convicts more people than he saves. Um, you know, that just because you are sorry for your sin doesn't mean you're a Christian. You know, just because you are um, sorry and repent, you know, just, be- just because you feel guilty, just because you feel afraid of the judgment, um, that's not enough. There has to be repentance and faith. Um, so the Holy Spirit does convict more people uh, than he saves. And so he stays there uh, for two more years. Felix uh, was succeeded by Porcius Festus. That's a strange name. Uh, but Festus comes into power, and he wants to do the Jews a favor. He knows that, uh, so he just, he leaves, so Felix, I'm sorry, what, Felix, when he leaves, instead of setting Paul free, he just leaves him for the next guy to deal with because um, he wants to do the Jews a favor. So chapter 25 now, Festus has been governor for all of three days, so he makes a kind of a diplomatic journey to Jerusalem to say hello to the chief priests and you know, get the lay of the land, find out what's going on, and they begin requesting a concession against Paul. They want Paul to come down to Jerusalem to face trial there because they haven't changed their scheme. They want to attack him on the way and kill him. So they've got the same scheme going on. So Festus, Festus answers, well, I'm leaving Jerusalem in a couple days, so why don't you all just come to me? Why don't you all come with me to Caesarea, and we'll do the trial there. Um, so that's what they do. And so now, here's another governor. We've just got this, this parade of dignitaries coming before Paul, asking, basically asking him to tell the gospel. You know, so what's your story? What's going on? Um, so now it's Festus's turn to come before Paul. Um, and that is kind of the irony of the text. I mean, even though all of these governors, they come in with pomp and circumstance, the irony of it is um, Paul is presented as more um, confident, more... It's almost as if he has a higher rank than them. It's, it's almost as if the author, the author of Acts is presenting it, all of these governors, as if they're coming before Paul, not as if he's coming before them. Um, so that's why I'm saying it like that. It, it's kind of an inversion of their status. Um, but anyway, they come before him, and they have the same kind of trial. He shares the gospel with them, that he's committed no offense. But, but Festus asks if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before him. Festus, Festus is offering him, I'll go down to Jerusalem with you, and I'll judge your case there. Would you just like a change of venue? I'll judge your case, but we'll do it in Jerusalem. Um, and so Paul's response is, in verse 8, I have committed no offense, either against the law, or of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. So are you willing to go up? In verse 10, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. That is to say, this is not the Sanhedrin's authority. This is the, this is the jurisdiction of Caesar. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. That is, there's no legal reason to go there. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. Then if I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, then no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So he knows that there's a scheme there, that they're going to try and kill him again. Um, so he appeals to Caesar, and that was, of course, the right of a Roman citizen. So again, Jesus is using the fact of his citizenship to advance him in the gospel. He has the right to appeal to Caesar, and so he does. Um, and one, once, he, once a Roman citizen makes that official pronouncement, I appeal to Caesar, um, Festus no longer has jurisdiction, legally. He can't decide the case. He, he is legally bound to send him to Rome. Um, and so Festus confers with the council, and there's no other answer. You've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar shall you go. Um, so there's another king. We're about, to, we're about to see another king that Paul is going to stand before and present the gospel, just like Jesus has been predicting. Jesus himself has been saying. But 
before the, before the boat is ready to send him to Rome, Agrippa comes into town. Now, he's even higher ranking than Festus. Festus is the governor of Judea. Uh, Agrippa is the king of another region a little bit to the east. Um, he's, um, I think, part of Herod's family, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, King Agrippa and Bernice arrive in, in Caesarea, and they, have a, they pay their respects to Festus because he's new. Um, and so they say hello to him. And, and um, Festus begins to tell them about this guy named Paul, who's appealed to Caesar, and he has no, since he's new, he's not a Jew, and he's new in town, he's new as a governor, he doesn't really know what in the world are the charges. I mean, it's something about the Old Testament law. It's about this guy named Jesus. Look at verse 19. You can see his confusion there. Um, they simply had some points of disagreement about their own religion, about a dead man, Jesus, that Paul thought was alive. So he's so confused, he doesn't even get the concept of a resurrection. He thinks the argument is, he's dead, no, he's alive. Not, he was dead and he is raised. So he, he hasn't even, he has, hasn't understood the context of what's going on. Um, so he asks Agrippa to give him help. He has to send Paul to Rome with a letter detailing the charges. Uh, how, else does, how else is Caesar going to know what to ask, and how to conduct the trial if he doesn't know what the charges are? So you have to send him with a letter detailing the charges, but I don't even know what the charges are. So now Her Agrippa the king gets to sit before Paul and hear his testimony. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 26. Agrippa says to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So he stretches out his hand, and he begins to tell his testimony again. Um, but, but especially verse 6, how he was standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Again, he's preaching the gospel as it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's his, that's his style. He preaches it as pointing to Old Testament prophecies and showing their fulfillment in Jesus. That's how he's preaching. And so he, he explains the gospel in those terms, and he gives his testimony again. Uh, but why, why is it important for Paul to give his testimony? You can see there in verse 12, he talks about Damascus Road and all, and all that. Why is it that Paul emphasizes so strongly his testimony? This is now the third time in the book of Acts we've read his testimony. Um, why is that such a key feature in his sharing of the gospel? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, that's the point where the, where the absolute change happened. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it, right. It was the, the, the reason he's telling the testimony over and over again is because this is eyewitness proof that Jesus did raise from the dead. That's, that's what happened on the Damascus Road is that Jesus appeared to him in bodily form as the resurrected Jesus. It wasn't just a kind of a dream that he had. It was Jesus right there who appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. You know? So in other words, the reason why, the reason why the, the Paul is, is dealing with his testimony so much is because that's what makes him an apostle. What made the apostles apostles was that they saw the risen Lord and they were commissioned by him to take the gospel. And so that's why he's emphasizing so strongly it's the fact that I saw with my own eyes the risen Jesus. What I'm proclaiming to you as the fulfillment of the Old Testament actually happened and I saw it. That, that's the argument. That's why, that's why his testimony is so essential to this because it's proof. You know, in, in, in the context of a court, 
eyewitness testimony is considered evidence and proof, especially if you have enough of them. Um, so that's what he's doing. He's arguing in court of law, and he's presenting proof, not just from the Old Testament, but from eyewitness testimony that Jesus actually did raise from the dead. So in other words, it's, it's proof of the gospel and proof of its truth. Um, but look at Herod's response. Or, I'm sorry, not Herod, but Agrippa's response. Um, Festus interrupts him in verse 24. While Paul was saying these things, and he was giving his defense, Festus interrupts him with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Of course, anyone who listened to Paul knew he could tell he was a genius. But you're a genius, but you're crazy. What's wrong with you? How can you believe these things? But Paul said to him, I'm not out of my mind. And not only that, but he turns it on to Agrippa. He says, the king knows these things because they, weren't happened in a cor- they didn't happen in a corner. That is, Jesus' life and ministry is well known. Verse 26. And then notice how he points directly at Agrippa. You do believe the prophets. I know that you do. That is, he's pressing him for a commitment to Christ. He's not just content to just share the gospel. He goes the next step and says, you believe, don't you? He, he, push, he cl- pushes for the clothes, you know, in terms of salesman language. He goes, he goes for it. He doesn't just leave it out there to say, here's the gospel truth, take it or leave it. He, he pushes for the, the commitment. And I think that's something that you, we should do as we share the gospel. We shouldn't just leave it out there as this is the truth, whatever. It's true for me, you know. We shouldn't say it like that. We should say this is the truth, repent and believe. We should present the command to repent, and we should present the, their need to believe, and we should push for it. Now, not, not in a rude way pushing them to it, but we should we should bring them to that point where they have to make, they need to make a decision. They can't just leave it alone. Um, and Grippa's response is kind of politic. In a short time, you know, he kind of jokes, you know, in a short time, you might persuade me to become a Christian. He, he doesn't deny it, but he doesn't accept it because he's in the room with all these other of his su- of subjects, and not, not necessarily his subject, but all these people under him. Um, so he doesn't want to commit to it, but he doesn't want to say no. He just kind of gives a political non-answer like a politician does. Um, so while he so he waits there in jail for a little while, and the boat is ready. In chapter 27, he now is shipped off to Rome. But Jesus has another stop along the way before he can get to Rome. Um, Jesus wants him to stop along uh, on the island of, of, what's it called? I just drew a blank. Yeah, first Crete. Yeah, Malta, that's what it is. Thank you, my mind blanked. Um, so they, they're sailing across the Mediterranean, and, and they first they stop at Crete at a port called Fair Havens. Um, but the, the weather is turning bad. Of course, in the wintertime in the Mediterranean, you can't sail because there's too many storms and it's too rough, and you can't do it. It's, they're coming now to the end of fall. Uh, this is late October, somewhere around in there. And they get to, they get to the island of Crete, and the weather is turning so bad they need to winter there on the island of Crete. But Fair Havens, where they are, is not a good port, so they want to go around the island. They just want to sail just a short 40-mile cruise to the western tip of Crete to a port called Phoenix where they can winter for, safely um, for the rest of the winter. Um, but at, and Paul says, don't do it. Um, but the rest of the sailors decide to do it, and so they, as they're going this short cruise just up the coast, a, a northeastern wind drives them out to sea and drives them about, what, 300 miles or something and crashes them on Malta. Um, but notice that this, but Jesus is the one driving the storm. Jesus is the one who's in control of the weather. And Jesus is bringing Paul to the island of Malta to share the gospel with the barbarians there. And what happens when they get to Malta is not only does God give him the, the lives of all the people on the boat, 
Um, but God begins to do miracles through him of healing. He heals the governor of the island. Note, note again, governor. He's going before the officials, the rulers. And he heals, that, he heals someone in his household, and then, he's, and then everybody hears about it. So he, all these sick people start coming to him, and he starts healing them. In other words, that storm that, the, the storm that um, almost cost his life and, and the lives of those men is now what God uses to advance the gospel. Again, it's through the suffering. This time it's not suffering at the hands of men. It's suffering at the hands of the weather. But you have to understand that a shipwreck at sea is a deadly thing. I mean, this is Paul's life in jeopardy, but it's for the sake of the gospel. And the, and the gospel advances to Malta. Now in chapter 28, they finally arrive in Rome, and the first thing he does is he goes to the Jews. Um, in the last couple minutes there, we need, to look, we need to look closely at what happens to the Jews here because it helps us understand how God is driving the gospel. So he appeals, he goes to the Jews and says, uh, I've been accused, uh, but I'm innocent. And they say, well, we'll hear you. We haven't heard anything bad about you, but we'll let you speak. So he comes to this, the, of course, he can't go to them because he's a prisoner and he's chained. So the, the Jewish people come to him and he begins sharing the gospel. Verse 24, some of chapter 28, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others wouldn't believe. And when they did not agree with one another and began leaving, after Paul had spoken one parting word, he said, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet of your father, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. So in other words, he goes to the, as his pattern of his ministry is he goes to the Jew first, and they don't hear. So he quotes them this passage from Isaiah, and the way, uh, of course, he quotes it for them as, as kind of almost a, a judgment on them, but the reason Luke records it here is because it helps us understand how Jesus is driving the gospel. Jesus is using the rejection of the Jewish people to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That's exactly what the, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. You remember what he said? A hardening in part has happened to the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles should come in. The point is, the unbelief of the Jews is Jesus' strategy to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And the promise, for example, in Romans 11 is that when the that there is coming a day when the Jews will repent. And when that happens, it will be as life from the dead. That is, all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the restoration of all things will begin to come to happen. But in the meantime, before God redeems the Jews and redeems all things, he wants the gospel to go out to the rest of the world. That can only happen if the Jews at this time don't believe. Because if they believe now, it would be the restoration of all things. So, in Jesus' wisdom, he wants the gospel to go to everyone, so he hardens the hearts of the Jews. Jesus is not just sovereign over those who believe. He is sovereign over those who don't believe. And he chooses who believes and who don't believe for the advancement of the gospel in the world. He's, he's not just driving the weather, and he's not just controlling the Roman governors. He's controlling even the hearts of men who believe and don't believe. And he's using that and choosing that to advance his gospel throughout the world. He is the one doing it. Um, but you'll notice that the book of Acts ends and Paul never gets to speak to Caesar. We've been driving towards that. It's like, the, it's like Luke has been setting that up for chapter after chapter. 
We're getting ready to talk to Caesar. He's getting ready to talk to Caesar. He's going up the ranks of all these officials. And then it never happens. Luke is intentionally leaving the story unfinished. The book of Acts is not done because Jesus isn't done building his church. There's a reason why there's kind of a cliffhanger ending on this book. is because we're supposed to understand that the book of Acts is continuing today, that Jesus is still driving the gospel. He is still building his church. He hasn't stopped. And look at verse 31. Look at how it ends. He stayed there two full years, verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Not only is that the last word in my text, that's the last word in the Greek text. The last thing you see in this cliffhanger ending, Luke has specifically chosen the word unhindered to be the last word. That's a key to the theme of the book. Jesus is driving the gospel. He's been doing it since the, since the Pentecost, and he's doing it now for 2,000 years, and nothing has ever stopped him, and nothing ever will. That's the point of the book of Acts. We don't need to see the miracles anymore because we know the truth that Jesus is driving the gospel. And we can have confidence to preach the gospel, and we can have confidence to suffer for him because he is our Lord and he is our shepherd and he's guiding us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do um, humble ourselves before you this morning considering your great power and your sovereignty. And we thank you, God, that we are in your hand. And everywhere you guide us, you are our shepherd. For this, God, we worship you, and we ask that you would give us strength as we serve you this week. In Christ's name, amen.